Good morning. morning we find ourselves back in our journey through the gospel of Mark. We are picking up in chapter 3 this morning and we're looking at the second part of a section of scripture that's entitled that I've entitled tradition versus sovereignty. And again this is a second piece because we looked at the first piece last week and we looked at the fact of man's traditions often fly in the face of God's sovereignty. It flies in the face of biblical commandment. Oftentimes we place our own traditions above what God has told us we should. But it goes to the heart and to the point that man is to weigh everything he does against the scripture. Does it line up with scripture? Then you're good. If it does not, check your heart. But this morning we're going to look at a second happening. As last week Jesus declared himself Lord of the Sabbath, We are going to find on this particular Sabbath that Jesus was not just saying that generically, that he's the Lord of all Sabbaths, which he is, but he's Lord of this particular Sabbath in general that we're going to look at. All three synoptic gospels focus on these two aspects of Jesus' ministry and him talking about being Lord of the Sabbath. And it's important because Jesus, again, is refuting the fact of unbiblical, extra-biblical tradition that the Pharisees and the Sadducees sought to put upon the people of Israel. We know that God made the Sabbath as a day of rest, as a day of to do good and to worship God without the hindrance of our work. But the Pharisees turned it into a difficult day, a day of great grievousness and great harm because of all the added laws and regulations that they added to the Word of God. But this morning I want to focus on one of the particular issues that we're going to look at today. And in the fact of tradition versus sovereignty, we need to look at the heart of what are we seeking. Because what we seek often defines what our perspective is. If I am seeking hard after something, usually my perspective is looking in that same direction. Right? If we're focused on, I'm going to pick on Abigail this morning. If you're focused on playing something well on the piano... Your focus is towards what is that music telling you? How is the tempo? All those things I don't understand, right? But if your focus is on playing a game, you're not focused on what you're practicing on the piano necessarily. Well, the same thing goes for our spiritual perspective and our spiritual attitudes. That which we focus on usually defines our perspective. God calls his people to have a what? A biblical worldview or a biblical perspective. That means that the lens of Scripture is what shows us everything that we look at. It often allows us to be less offended. Why? Because man can't do anything to us that God hasn't already forgiven greater for us. Therefore, why do we take offense at man? But we often do. Because we remove that lens of Scripture. We remove that biblical perspective and seek in our pride, Oh, I'm offended. No, it's irrelevant. Because the love of Christ was not based on not being offended. If it was, the love of Christ would have never been there because we have always and have always offended a holy God. But because of Christ's love and his compassion and his grace and his mercy, we can stand righteous before the Father because of his atoning blood that was shed on Calvary. But again, what we seek after often defines our perspective. Man is very good at finding justification for what he does. If you want to believe something hard enough, you can find justification. If you don't believe me, Google things, right? You can come up with on Google a thousand different answers for the same question. Or you can search long enough to find an answer that lines up with the perspective you want to have. The nice thing about God's Word is, is if we take it how it's written, how God ordained it to be written, there's one interpretation, and that's God's. Yes. Has man added to the scriptures? Yep. Has man added his own perspective to the scriptures? Yes. But to our detriment. Because Christ reminded us in the end of the book of Revelation not to add to or to take away from God's word. If the Bible is open to man's interpretation, it is no longer sovereign. Because now it's up to man to interpret what God meant. And God never intended it that way. What God has said is what God has meant. 
God is the author of Scripture, therefore he is the authority behind the Scripture, not man's opinion. The problem that the Pharisees had is they wanted to be the interpreter of God's law. I want to be self-righteous and I am motivated therein to be righteous in my own power. Forgetting the fact that the law was given to show them that they could never satisfy the righteousness of God in the first place. That's why the law was given, to show that every man stands guilty before the Lord. But they didn't want to see that. What are we seeking after this morning? Why are we here today? Are we here out of tradition and routine? Or are we here out of a heart to worship and to seek after the Lord, to see how we ought to live each and every day? And to make great worship of a God who is worthy of that worship. There are many promises in God's word. But the greatest one was the fact that Christ was to come. And that he was to accomplish salvation on behalf of a people that were wretched. And sinful. And unworthy. The promises began in Genesis, right? Genesis 3.15. God promised a savior who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 49.10 continued in the blessing of Israel upon his sons that out of the line of Judah would come one that would, work, that would rule as king forever. That was given in Genesis 49.10. In the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament before the silence period, right? The intertestamental period. God promised a refiner, one who would come and refine his people and purify his people, one that would what? Rule and reign as God. God promised this. And we know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were what? They were the professional preachers of the day. They were the rabbis that were to teach the people the ways of the Lord. They were the ones that had the scriptures. They were the ones that were to expound the meaning of the scriptures so that people could walk in harmony with the Lord, that they could follow after God and his ways and be pleasing in his sight. Not because of what they do, but because of the faith that God said, if you walk in my ways, I will bless you as my people. Right? We're reading about that this morning in Exodus 33 this morning. God told Moses, eh, if I'm around this people for a moment... I would destroy them. Why? Because we're sinful. Because we seek to do our own thing. Because we seek in our own pride that we have a better way than God does. But that's not the case. And Moses interceded for the people. Remember, if I have found favor in your sight and you know me my name, this is your people. Do you notice in the dialogue between God and Moses often, God always says, your people are stubborn. Your people you need to leave. And Moses always came back, no, Lord, they are your inheritance. And he, it was always about the heart of what? Worship to God. You are great and worthy. And if you destroy this people, the people will dishonor your name because they'll see that you brought them out of Egypt just to destroy them for their stubbornness. But because of your name's sake and your glory, lead this people. But what was man's response? What was the Pharisees' response to the fact of, one, they knew what all the Old Testament prophecies prophesied of Christ? They knew these. It was a requirement, right? They had to understand the Scriptures. But they missed it, didn't they? In John chapter 1, verse 11, we are recorded the response of the people as a whole. John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, And he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So the ones that were the keepers of the law, the ones that were the keepers of the wisdom and the manifold graces of God, missed the Messiah. Ever since Genesis 3, there has been a promise of God that the Messiah was coming in order to make atonement for the people's sins. And they've been looking for that Messiah to come, and they missed it. You remember when the wise men showed up at Herod's palace? And they were telling Herod that a great king, they came to find this king. And what did Herod say? He asked all the scribes and Pharisees, what does the Bible say about this? What do the scriptures say? And they said, oh, he's over there, just off in Bethlehem, short journey away. But then they missed it. Instead of going to worship and to seek out the fact that the scriptures were fulfilled in their time, they blew it off. Why? 
because they were worried about their own tradition and their authority and their power over the people. Man gets blown up on his power, does he not? You ever seen a person on a power trip? It's not pretty. Why? Because oftentimes it's irrational. Why? Because man has to do everything he can to protect his power, which in essence he has none. But man continues to walk in his own way. John chapter 10 gives us the reason of why the Pharisees hated Jesus so much. It wasn't for the fact that Jesus healed people. It wasn't for the fact that Jesus had love and compassion for people. It was the fact that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their pride and their arrogance and claimed to be God. That was their biggest hatred. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10 this morning, if you would, please. John chapter 10 and verse 31. John 10, verse 31. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Here you go. Here's their confession. The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Then verse 37. If I do, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. You know what's interesting is the fact that the Pharisees and the scribes knew that God promised a deliverer, a Messiah. And they knew that the Messiah would be God in the flesh. The scriptures are not silent about that. Isaiah 9, 6 lofty and great messianic passage talks about him being called wonderful counselor mighty god prince of peace there's one god and one god only and yet they're offended at the fact that the promised messiah claims to be god you see the the disconnect here it doesn't fit together if you're looking for God to come in the flesh to save you from your sin, and then you find that God comes and claims to be God, why are you offended? We are offended at the person of Christ when our sin and our pride gets in our way because it kicks against the goals, right? You guys remember that Old Testament expression? Like Old Testament expressions, by the way. But kicking against the goads, it means the fact that we always fight against God because our pride gets in the way of the fact of I'm righteous, I'm self-justified, this is my way and I know what's best. And when we come face to face with God, we see our sin with great clarity. Because God is the perfect mirror. Perfect holiness reflects perfect sinfulness. And make no mistake, we are all perfect sinners. Every one of us. But God by His grace and His mercy, has cleansed us from our sins and made us righteous. But in that, in our pride, we kick against the goads because we don't like to be shown that we're sinners, that we're wrong, that we're foolish, that we're weak, that God knows best. The gospel message is what? The fact that man cannot save himself and he needed propitiation to be made on his behalf by one who was not a man, but was fully man, because he was the Son of God. The Gospel says that only through the blood of Jesus Christ is salvation gained. That, not by works, but of faith alone, by the grace of God. Man hates the fact that he can do nothing to earn his salvation. It's that free gift part that we actually have a hard time with, right? Because we always feel like we should offer something or give something in order to gain. But that's anti-biblical, it's antithetical. The scriptures say that it was a gift of God that no man could do. The glory of the gospel, but also, take this to heart, our strength and our, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, our confidence in our salvation is the fact that it's not based on what we do, right? If we had to be the earners and keepers of our salvation, we never would. But the fact that it is a work of God, lest no man should boast, the fact that it is of God and Him alone, it is by grace, which God gives, through faith in Jesus Christ, therefore we have confidence that we cannot lose our salvation. 
Because it's not based on us keeping. It's not based on us holding on to. It's not based on us doing everything perfectly, which is right. Why? Because we are still sinners in the flesh. Are we forgiven? Absolutely. Do we still sin? Yes. There's nobody that's perfect. There's nobody that walks perfect. But we are to continue to seek to grow in grace and maturity and, Lord willing, sin less and less. But we will never reach perfection until we see him as he is. And there's nobody here that has seen Christ as he is. We just read that passage in Exodus this morning. To behold the face of God, you cannot do that and live. Therefore, no man walks perfect before the Lord. Rabbinic tradition says that man can be righteous if he follows all these extra-biblical laws. You can be righteous and earn salvation through your works if you follow all this perfectly. And as we looked at last week, they had to add a lot of extra laws on top of their laws because they couldn't get around their laws in order to show themselves perfectly. So they had to have all these extra steps in there in order to be okay. The simplicity of the gospel is profound because in its simplicity, it's hard for man to accept but in its simplicity, it is so complex, we're going to have all eternity to worship God over the simple, complex idea of salvation. Man's righteousness never accomplishes salvation. And Jesus made that fact in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where he said, what? If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, your righteousness needs to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He was rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees saying, y'all can't get there because your righteousness is not even surpassing that of your self-proclaimed righteousness. And then he took the law of God and he went to the heart of it. It says, do not murder. But I say to you, that if you look upon your brother with anger, you have committed murder in your heart already. Do not commit adultery. And you can stand there and say, I've never done that. And Jesus says, but if you've looked after a woman with lust in your heart, you have already committed adultery in your heart with her. He goes to the heart of God that it's not the external appearance that matters, it's the internals. It's the heart of man that God is worried about, not his external appearance. People get so caught up in what we look like and what we do and how we do things that we can look from the outside in and say, oh, that person's got it together. But if you read through Matthew 23, where Jesus rebuked the Pharisees time and time again, he continued to proclaim the fact that you look whitewashed on the outside, but inside you're full of dead man's bones. You look great on the outside. You are the pinnacle of what people are looking up to religiously, and yet you are following after Satan, and you're making children of hell. The fact is God is worried about the heart of a man, not the exterior pomp of a man. Again, I made that offhanded comment Wednesday night that he who puffes himself up much has much to pop, right? It's that idea of the more you build yourself up, the more God has to pop because of your pride. And in that, the Pharisees were very prideful. But you know what? There are a lot of Pharisees today. Bless you. There are a lot of people who stand on religiosity and stand on the fact of I can do these things and make myself acceptable before God. Again, Satan doesn't continue to create always new things. He uses the same thing packaged in a different way. The proper response of the Pharisees should have been the response that Paul had in Philippians 3. When he said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, but I counted all things but loss, all things but rubbish, just to know Christ. That's the response that we are to have to the gospel. You know, they were really angry and aggravated at the fact that sinners, remember, they weren't sinners, they were the righteous. These wretched sinners came to Christ and found salvation and found joy. And Christ called the most unworthy people to follow him. He didn't come and call the Pharisees and scribes and say, y'all need to follow me because you need to be the example. No, he came and he called sinners to himself. He called the lowly. He called the outcasts. He called people that found joy in the fact that they could have fellowship with God. The beauty of the gospel is the fact that there is nothing that I can do to make myself clean, but God does the work. And I can be justified. And I can be sanctified. 
And I can be glorified one day because of the work of Christ. Why do people hate the message of the gospel? Because first you have to admit the fact that you're a sinner. And man does not like to be a sinner. And man doesn't like to be able to not do his own thing and make himself look good. Right? Man is a very prideful creature. But God says he will be close to the humble. So what was the actual response of the Pharisees? John's gospel records it for us in John 5, verse 18. I'll read that for you. It says this, And for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking their Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Where are we at today with the person and work of Christ? Because that is the thing that is tantamount to everything. If you want to correct perspective, you've got to have a correct view of Christ. It all starts with Christology, right? The study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. You have to start with Jesus. That's where it must begin. And if you get Jesus right, the rest falls in line. Bless you. Yes, is there things that we need to grow in? Absolutely. And as you grow as a Christian, God will continue to mature and refine you. Again, I've stated it a hundred times from here. There are many times my family and I have gone through periods of, oh, the Lord is pressing on this and we need to get rid of this. And, okay, we think we're doing good. And then, oh, God puts his finger, what about this? And, oh, okay, now we need to get rid of this. It's a continual process. We continue to grow in grace and sanctification. It doesn't all happen at once. You don't accept Christ and become the most perfect and holy and godly man like Moses. It's not that way. Why? Because we continue to wrestle in our flesh. Because we continue to wrestle with our pride. We continue to wrestle with the ideas of, all right, God, you did that, now I got it from here. It's not how it works. We need to be wholly submitted to a holy God. Completely and humbly. But let's look at our text this morning. If you're not there, turn to the Gospel of Mark, please. Chapter 3. Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. And he entered again into a synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Let's pray this morning and ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, again for the opportunity to come and to worship. To come before you with singing and joy in our hearts because of the salvation that you have wrought for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are great and worthy to be praised. We thank you that you have allowed us to come here this morning without fear of persecution But Lord, even if persecution comes, may we continue to gather to make great your name because you are worthy above all else to be praised by your people. For even Christ told us that if if we are silent, the rocks will cry out with praise. I thank you that the rocks are silent today. I thank you that your people can continue to come to you in confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Father, as we get into your word this morning, we just ask that you will continue to refine our perspective that you would continue to humble our hearts before you, that you would continue to work in our hearts that we may be faithful slaves of Christ, that you would be exalted, that you would be glorified, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is in us. We just ask your blessing on the reading of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Tradition versus sovereignty. Man will always wrestle with these two things. Because behind tradition, oftentimes, is man's values and man's ideas. Again, it was fitting last week, we were, what, celebrated the 4th of July, Independence Day. 
And is Independence Day a sin to celebrate? No. But again, look at our traditions. Why do we do them? What's the purpose of them? We give thanks to God for the fact that he gave us a free country. So our tradition brings worship to God. And we're grateful. This week, we're going to look at a Sabbath setting. A setting in the synagogue where man was compelled to go and worship, right? The children of Israel worshipped in the synagogue. And Jesus, once again, finds himself there. So we're going to look at our first point this morning, and it's the setting. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 and kind of get the context of what's going on. Verse 1, and he entered again into a synagogue. Now, these two passages, chapter 2, verse 23 through 28, which we looked at last week in chapter 3, 1 through 6, are very close together, and all three synoptic gospels places them one after another. Is it because they were close in context? Probably. Is it because they were close in time? Probably, but God doesn't say, so we're not going to give any more conjecture than that. But he entered into a synagogue in an unnamed city, and it says, and a man was there whose hand was withered. Now, it's important. We need to understand what was Jesus doing at the synagogue. Well, Luke chapter 6, which is the same parallel passage as this, gives us understanding that Jesus was teaching. Again, Jesus often entered the synagogues to teach the people. And what else do we know? We know that in Luke chapter 19, verse 48, that the people were always amazed and clung to the very words of Christ when he taught. Why? Here's where we need to find where the rubber meets the road today. When you go into a church and you go into a place of worship, is the word being preached or is opinion being preached? Because that's the difference of what the people saw here. They clung to the very words of Christ because he was preaching with authority. He was preaching with authority. Why? One, because he was God, but two, because he was preaching God's word. The Pharisees preached tradition. They preached opinions of other rabbis. They didn't expound the scriptures and help people to understand them. That is the difference between a church that is seeking after Christ or a church that is using the church for a position in power. Is the Bible being preached? Praise the Lord. Is it not? Dust off your feet and go to a church that is. And it's your responsibility to make sure that the word is being preached. As much as it is of mine. But again, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. And he was teaching what? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He was preaching a kingdom-focused gospel. What does that mean? That means that he was preaching the fact that man was a sinner. That man needed to come and to humble himself before the Lord, repent, and by faith believe in the work and person of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. It's very simply and concisely put, that is the gospel. That I am a sinner, I cannot do anything to save myself, and that by the grace and mercy of God, I can come humble, repent, and believe the gospel. Simple. But man likes to muddy the waters. But Jesus was preaching the fact that he had love and compassion for a lost people. Amen to that one. Or else none of us would be here. If God did not come to call sinners to himself, he would have called nobody. Remember, he rebuked the Pharisees. It was not the healthy I came to call, but the unhealthy. The sick, right? Those who understood the fact that they were sick. Sick with what? Sin. But Jesus was teaching with great power and authority, and the people were amazed. But it's funny how quickly that amazement turned to hatred, because the same people that were amazed vastly made up the people that cried out, crucify him, and let his blood be upon us and upon our children. How quickly we get infatuated with an idea, and then we lose interest. It doesn't tickle our fancy anymore, right? Man is very fickle. Praise God that he is not. But man has to come to God on his terms. And Christ preached the gospel. But it says that there was a man there whose hand was withered. Luke, being the doctor that he is, tells us that it was his right hand. And that word withered in the Greek actually means like a leaf that dries up and shrivels, right? It's the same connotation that his hand was dried up and shriveled. It was useless. He couldn't use it. Bless you. And the thing that's important is in Luke stating that it was his right hand, most people are right-handed. Not everybody. Mark will forgive you that you're left-handed. 
But no, the fact was that in calling out that it was his right hand, he was stating the fact that he probably couldn't use his dominant hand and therefore it impacted his livelihood, right? It's kind of hard to work if your right or your left hand, whichever one you're dominant with, doesn't work. He had a hard time making, his mo making money to provide, right? There's tradition out there, and tradition's not always correct. Again, I'm going to state that beforehand. There's a tradition that this man was a stonemason, and being right-handed, he can no longer do his work, and therefore he was a beggar. Whether or not that tradition is right, don't know. Bible doesn't say, so I'm not going to conjecture again. But the fact that the man had a useless hand was the important fact that was noted. The other important fact to notice is that he didn't come and approach Christ and ask for healing. How many people do we see in our text, just in the short couple chapters we've gone through, that came to Christ and asked for healing, that sought after Christ. Remember the four friends that dug through the roof to bring their crippled friend down to Christ? This man was just in the setting, listening to the words of Christ, and he didn't come and say, Lord, heal me. Jesus pointed this man out. The other thing to note is this was not a life-threatening issue, right? A crippled hand, a man can continue to live a good and healthy, productive life with one, with one less hand, right? So it could have waited. Jesus didn't need to heal on the Sabbath. But do you know why he went after it? He was confronting the issue. He was confronting a biblical issue. One, that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. And two, man's tradition was unbiblical. The fact that the Pharisees said it is unlawful to do good or to heal on the Sabbath flew in the face of the purpose of the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath was to worship God, to find rest from your work, and to be able to do good on that day. So again, why did Jesus choose to go rush headlong into a confrontation? Because there was a spiritual issue of truth that needed to be defended. The fact that the Pharisees had in their mind that it was unbiblical to do good on the Sabbath, flew in the face of God's law and the heart of God. And Christ was there to confront it. How many times have we in our lives walked upon a truth that we've been confronted with that has been known to be wrong or unbiblical? Do we stand our ground and do we preach truth? Or do we back away and say, yeah, somebody else will take care of it. Or my pastor can preach on that on Sunday. How many times do we shrink away because we're afraid to offend and to be offended? They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. That we must remember first and foremost. But we are compelled to preach the gospel all the time with love and discernment. But we are to preach. It is not my job to stand here and to preach for everybody here. It's my job to preach the good news so that you guys are encouraged and equipped to go forth and to make disciples. It is not a pastor's job to be the only disciple maker. It is not the pastor's job to be the only one out there preaching and teaching the gospel. It is everybody's job who knows and names the name of Christ to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We come here to be refreshed. We come here to worship and to make great a holy God. And we have the opportunity to do that. The church setting is for the church. Understand that. It's not wrong for unchurched people to come into the church. It's actually great. But the purpose of the church setting is to encourage the saints for the work of the ministry. It is for believers. It is for us to make great our great God and to worship Him together and to be refreshed after a hard week. And if you don't think your week is hard, just pause and look at it again. Because life is hard. It's difficult. God promised it would be. And God is never untrue on his promises. So we see our setting here. And we see the fact that in this time of Jesus preaching and teaching the gospel, he's confronting an issue. He's confronting a spiritual untruth. That the rabbis and the Pharisees are saying that it is unbiblical to do good and to heal on the Sabbath. That man is not worth compassion. And it's interesting because Matthew's gospel points out for us the actual situation. So the situation is what we find in verses 3 through 5. 
Again, what did verse 2 reveal to us? The fact that they were just there for the fact of we're going to get you and we're going to deal with you because you make us look bad and you break our traditions and you say that we're unbiblical. The Pharisees were there not to worship, but to accuse and condemn. And you know what's interesting? The men who said that they were holy and righteous and they were there to protect the Sabbath, in their hearts desperately desired Christ to break their Sabbath so they could accuse him. If they loved the Sabbath so much, they would want him to honor the Sabbath, not break it so they could accuse him. That's what we had. So let's look at our situation And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. Again, Christ called him out. This man didn't come seeking healing. He didn't come seeking Christ and said, hey, since you're here, can you heal my hand? Jesus called him forward. Why? For the purpose of making a spiritual point. What is that point? And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill Now, this question was flying directly at the heart of the problem. Go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, please. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. We'll find out here that the Pharisees actually started the questioning. Matthew, chapter 12, starting in verse 10. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. Again, they could care less about the compassion part of God. They could care less that this man had a physical problem. They don't care about that. They were worried about their rules and regulations that said you could not heal on the Sabbath. Remember, we read through the Mishnah last week, talking about in the rabbinic rule that any doctor that promoted healing on the Sabbath broke the Sabbath because that was constituted as work. They were to just keep the bare minimum so they didn't die but they could not improve the condition. So that's where this question is coming from. Verse 11, And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than sheep? So then, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Again, Jesus is going back to the heart of the issue. Who has value? Man or animal? And the Pharisees couldn't very well say an animal, even though they do promote that in what they did. They would rather go out of their way to save their sheep than they would to go out of their way and heal a man on the Sabbath. But they couldn't say that because their condition was what? They were lost. They were at odds with God. And if they admitted the fact that man has value, then they constituted and stood behind the fact that Jesus was right in healing on the Sabbath. But they couldn't say that because that would break their tradition. So therefore, they couldn't say that man was of of great value, even though they knew from Genesis that man was made in the image of God and has great value. So you have, on the other hand, the fact that they couldn't say, oh, nope, man's not good, can't heal on the Sabbath, because then they would admit that they were evil. They're in a quandary now, right? What do you do? You know what happened? Nothing. They said nothing. Why? Because in one hand, if they admitted that Jesus was right, they condemned their practices. They showed the people that they were exactly what Christ said they were, hypocrites. But if they condemned Jesus and his statement to do good on the Sabbath, then they showed themselves for exactly what they were, hypocrites and evil men. They were stuck between a proverbial rock and a hard place. But again, where is the value? Is the value on man made in the image of God, or is it upon an animal? Their practice showed it was upon an animal. It was good versus evil. But the question exposed their hearts, right? It exposed that their tradition was unbiblical and extra-biblical, right? Extra-biblical means you're adding to the Scripture. But it was also unbiblical because it wasn't fit within the Word of God. Therefore, anything that is extra-biblical or unbiblical is a violation of God's law, which is a violation of the holiness of God, which condemns us in our place again. Secondly, it exposed their indifference to the needs and the sufferings of people. They did not care that man suffered because they were righteous. It doesn't matter that they're lowly and unworthy of anything, which is why they were offended at the fact that Christ called so many sinners to himself. 
Because they thought of anybody, we were the elect of God. We have it right. We are the example. Thirdly, it also showed the fact in Jesus saying, was it good to do, was it right to do good? To save a life or to kill? Because he knew their heart. He knew they were out to kill him. So they were, he was exposing the fact that their hearts were to kill on the Sabbath. That was why they were there. They were there to see that Christ would fail in keeping their traditions and then they could go after and kill him. You know, the scriptures tell us that Jesus understood that. In Matthew's gospel, it says he knew their heart. He knew what they were thinking. And he rushed headlong into it. Why? Because it was unbiblical and he was there to confront the lie. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is truth. The truth. There is absolute truth. And I will never apologize for that. There is absolute truth. And it's God. God does not change. That's what the word immutable means. He doesn't change. And we are always to confront the lie with the truth. But what does scripture tell us? Confront the truth with what? With love and compassion. Why? Because as they are, so are we one day, right? Every one of us can look into our past and see the day when we were an unsaved sinner. All of us have different stories, and that's okay. But all of us have one similar quality. We were all sinners until the grace of God came and saved a wretched one such as ourselves. Not because we were good, but because of his glory. God's requirement was to do good on the Sabbath. Turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament. Y'all know I love the Old Testament. Go to Isaiah chapter 1. And again, being that we're in the context of Pharisaical and rabbinic rule, this is the scripture they should have understood. In Isaiah chapter 1, God condemned Israel for this exact same thing. That their traditions were flying in the face of what God called them to do, and that was to do good and to honor the Sabbath. In Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? For I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with blood. So again, he's going right to the heart of the matter. You guys on the outside, you look great. Do you know later in chapter 29 of Isaiah, he also cond he condemns them for doing what? Traditions learned of rote or routine. They do it just because that's what they were supposed to do. But then what did he say? But your heart is far from me. So what does God say to do on the Sabbath? Verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the widow. Plead. Or defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Right? That's what the Sabbath is about. Following with a passionate heart the ways of God. To love man as yourself, but to love God above everything else, right? That's why Jesus said of these two commandments, what are the greatest? To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Again, with those two things, there's no room for sin. If you're loving God and loving your neighbor, there's not room for sin. The compassionate heart of God is the same heart we are to have to our fellow people. Why? Because we are to reflect Christ to the world. If we refuse to reflect the compassion and the love of Christ to the world, how does the world ever know the fact that God is loving and compassionate? Well, it's intolerant and hateful to tell people that they're a sinner. No, it's not. It is hateful to allow sinners to be condemned to hell because we're silent. What did Jesus, or, well, Jesus and God say to the prophet Ezekiel? If you hold silent, I will hold their blood upon your hands. Right? We are the watchmen. We're the ones that have been given the scriptures. We understand the fact that there is a gospel. We are to preach it. We are not to be silent. 
We are not to condemn people to hell because we refuse to get uncomfortable by preaching the gospel. What was their response? The scriptures here tell us in Mark 3, they kept silent. Again, what response do they have? They're condemned either way they answer. They're wrong either way they answer. They condemn their tradition and uphold the sovereignty of God, or they deny the sovereignty of God to uphold tradition, which shows them as wicked and foolish men. Again, all men will be silent before a holy God. But it's interesting here. This is the only place in all of the Gospels that specifically says Jesus was angry. Are there other points where Jesus was angry? Yes, we can see that. But this is the only point in the Gospels that say Jesus was specifically angry. But you know what's interesting? Is in the anger and wrath of God, he had compassion. What does it say? After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their heart. Why? Because he knows that they were condemning themselves to hell. Christ was not ignorant of that fact. He was angry at the hardness of heart and at the stubbornness of pride. And yet he was broken with grief and humility because he knew what that resulted in. He knew that they were self-condemning themselves before him as a wicked and an obstinate people because in their pride they say, I have a better way. You know, that's exactly what Lucifer did when he fell from heaven. I will. Pride. Look at sin. You know what it goes back to? Pride. Grab any sin you want, and it'll go back to pride. Pride flies in the face of a holy God. Because there's nothing and no one that is greater than God. And until we get that, humility will be far from you. But he was angry because they were hard-hearted. They were stiff-necked. You know, I was that way too. I was a thick-headed man for a long time. But God. But God. <clears throat> what was Jesus' response to their silence? I can't imagine this, the wrath on the face of Christ and the anger mixed with the grief. That had to have been a very forbidding stare when he looked about at the Pharisees. Had to make them quite uncomfortable. I'm sure their consciences were burning within them. But what was his response? He said, after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Christ's response was to continue to do good and to show compassion and to seek to save the lost. Sure, the Pharisees were still lost and their response was wrath and anger. But you know what? There were people there that heard the gospel and responded. It's the beauty of the gospel, right? You can be angry, but what does the scripture say? Be angry and yet do not sin. Anger is not the sin issue. Sin is. Why are we angry? What is behind our anger? Is it our pride and selfishness? Or is the fact of righteous anger? Because there is righteous anger. If there's not, then Jesus just sinned right here. And I know he didn't. So there's obviously righteous anger. But it's the motivation behind that anger. But in his anger, he also found grief and compassion and love. And we are to exemplify those same things as followers of Christ. That even in our anger... We are not to sin, and we are to show compassion and love to others, even those whom we are angry with. Let's look at our third point, and it's the statement. The statement of the heart of man, verse 6. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Luke chapter 6, verse 11, which is the parallel passage of this, said they were filled with rage. Pretty strong language. They were filled with rage that Christ would heal on the Sabbath. 
And in their rage, they did something. And it says here, immediately. What'd they do? Well, they went out and formed a quite unbiblical, well, that's to say the least, but an alliance with those who were their enemies, spiritually, right? It says the Herodians. Do you guys know who the Herodians were? The Herodians were those who upheld and followed Herod the Great. And in essence out of that, Rome. They were the spiritual opposite of the Pharisees. They loved the Greco-Roman way. They loved Herod and the things and the pleasures of the Greeks and the Romans. And the Pharisees supposedly loved God and the law of God and the Judea, uh, Judaism, right? So they were on the exact opposite ends of the spectrum. Why does it not make sense or why does it make sense that they would join together? You know what's interesting? So you can always have multiple false religions get along. You can. Why? Because technically their end goal is still the same. No God, but my way. But you throw Christianity in it, biblical Christianity, not what we call our fluff and stuff in our culture today where everybody's a Christian and nobody knows any different. But biblical Christianity, people that follow Christ, that look differently, that live differently, that have a compassionate heart for the lost, those who seek not to live righteously in our own power, but to live righteously because we have the Spirit of God indwelling us. There will always be hatred and animosity there. Always. And you will not be able to couple and yoke with a false religion because truth is truth and it won't allow it. But you take untruth and it can couple with other untruth to continue to protect itself. If I can find that this false religion over here that I don't necessarily agree with can help me, I'm going to take it and I'm going to add it and I'm going to move. Why? Because it can protect the stance that I've taken. It can protect the perspective that I desire to have. Again, our perspective is important. How do we look at the world? How do we look at each other? How do we look at the scripture? It's important. But again, the Herodians, they were loyal to Herod the Great and to Rome. And they were viewed as traitors by the whole of Israel. Israel looked at the Herodians as traitors to their own people. But these are the ones that the Pharisees immediately went out with and conspired with to seek to kill Christ. Why? Because Roman law declared that they could not in, in, uh, do capital punishment on their own. The state of Israel was not allowed to do capital punishment outside of Roman oversight. Rome was in charge of that. Well, so they went after those who could help them in this. They also didn't move against him because of his popularity. How many times did you see that they were afraid of the crowd because they considered him a prophet, right? They had a fear of man, not a fear of God. But one of the greatest statements was, it's not his time. They didn't move to kill Christ immediately because it was not his time. And nothing happens outside of the sovereignty of God. Amen? If you find yourself in a situation you don't like, God is still sovereign. God is still working. God is still moving. We just need to be faithful to God. And God will continue to work out those things. It's not always in the way that we expect or hope sometimes. Because the scripture tells us that God's ways are not our ways. And it's not always easy to walk through these things. But we can walk with confidence and humility because God loves us and walks with us through these things. And he strengthens us. And as we seek him, he reveals more of himself to us. It's the beauty of it. But knowing the hatred and the wrath of the Pharisees, what did Jesus do? Matthew 12 tells us that he withdrew for a time. He didn't run away, but he withdrew. Sometimes it's prudent to let anger settle down and then go back. When you're angry, do you tend to listen? I know I don't. When you're angry, it's hard to listen. So if you withdraw for a time and then go back and address the issue when you're calm and the other person's calm, usually you can have a conversation. Not always, but you have a better shot at it. And Christ withdrew for a time to let that animosity settle down. The purposes of God were, will, and can, will continue to always be fulfilled. Again, our confidence is in Christ and in God, in His Word, 
because his word is completely and perfectly authoritative. Do you know what's happening in our country? We're seeking to tear down the authority of the scriptures. If you take away the authority of the scriptures, you can rewrite the message. But if God is the author of the scripture, you cannot tear it down because God is the authority behind it. Is Satan opposed to morality? No. He's opposed to the authority behind the morality. Teach morality to people, and you can teach them to be Pharisees. Teach the authority behind the morality, and you can teach Christianity. The authority of Scripture is absolute, because the one who wrote it is absolute. Did he use men? Yes. But God dictated the Scripture completely and 100%. That's why we can trust it. It does not fail. It does not err. It is perfect and complete. But again, we fall into problems when we start trying to put our own interpretations to it. The Scripture is what it is. God it gave us exactly what He wanted us to have. Are there times where it's like, Ah, Lord, I wish you would have told me this. Yeah, sure. We're all curious, aren't we? We're curious people. But God gave us exactly what we needed for life and godliness. Second Peter 1. We have that promise and that hope. So what kind of perspective are you seeking to grow? One of sovereignty and the high view of God? Or one of tradition and the fallacy of man? Because at the end of the day, that's the questions we need to answer. How does our life play out? How does it look? Does it line up with scripture? Or does it line up with tradition? Does it line up with the word of God? Or does it line up what I think is best? Because every one of us are accountable before God for what we choose and how we live and our perspective in life. What are we teaching? What are we portraying to others? Are we portraying Christ and his gospel? Because again, remember, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not the gospel of Matthew or Samuel or Elijah or anybody else. It's the gospel of Christ, and we can't change the message. Are we being faithful to that message, and are we faithfully preaching that to a very lost world? Make no mistake, our world is lost. But God promised that again. So many people are shocked. Oh, the world's gone crazy. No, it's gone exactly as Scripture has ordained it to go. But our job is to be all the more faithful to the gospel and to preach the gospel faithfully every day. So do we see Christ through the lens and the perspective of God? Or do we see him through our own fallen humanity? Because that's where we need to be. That's what's going to dictate our perspective which is going to dictate our life and how we live and how we interact. Again, is it okay to be angry? Yes, but do not sin and continue to show the love of Christ and compassion to a lost world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through your word we can gain a biblical perspective. And we thank you that we can stand faithfully upon the word because it is completely true because you are the author of it because you are the authority behind it and because of the finished work of Jesus Christ we can stand firm upon the gospel we thank you that you came to call wretched sinners such as ourselves and that you have washed us and renewed us through the blood of Christ that we can stand holy and righteous before you, not because of our works, but because of the finished work of the cross and of Jesus Christ. Father, we just pray that we would walk pleasing in your sight, that we would have a perspective as John the Baptist did when he said, you must increase, I must decrease. That we would have a humble perspective as the man Job, whom you call blameless and upright because he feared God and hated evil. Father, may we continue to walk faithfully according to the scripture in obedience to it because you said, if you love me, you will obey me. Not you will grow in your own self-righteousness by following man-made rules and traditions or even by following the scriptures in our own strength, but that we would stand righteous because Christ made us righteous 
and because your spirit indwells us and gives us strength to walk in the power of the spirit, to walk in faithfulness and obedience to your word. And we love you because of what you have done for us on our behalf, not because we deserved it, not because we were good enough, not because we could accomplish it, but because it was an act that only Christ could do and because you chose to send your son to redeem an irredeemable people. Father, we thank you for that, and we just ask that you would bless your word, that we would grow in grace and sanctification, that we would continue to grow in maturity in our love of your word, that we would continue to read it and to be changed because it's a power in the word is your spoken word to us. You spoke to us through your son, which we have here before us in your word. Help us to be faithful to it, and help us to be faithful in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's for his glory and in his name that we pray. Amen.